All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, lesson number five on the Messianic Prophecy Study Series. Uh, those that are that are, are we're working live on the GoTo meeting, and then uh, those of you who are going to be listening on the audio portion, uh, whether it's on on Spotify or on Anchor FM uh, or some of the other places we're trying to get on here uh, as we move forward. Uh, just really glad you're tuning in and, and listening. Uh, last week, we spent some time discussing uh, the last part of our, of our series on Jesus and Genesis, uh, specifically uh, Genesis chapter 49 and the narrowing down of the line of the Messiah down to the tribe of Judah. So we first saw uh, seed of woman. Uh, then we saw uh, that it was more than likely this was messianic, uh, that he was going to dwell in the tents of Shem, that God was going to dwell in the tents of Shem. So we see back in Genesis 3, the Messiah is going to have human origins. In Genesis uh, chapter 9, we see that uh, he was going to have divine origins. Uh, then we go to Genesis 12, and we start to see the, the lineage break down into uh, Abram, who becomes Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Uh, and then Jacob passes on that patriarchal blessing to Judah and how the scepter will not depart from uh, between Judah's feet um, until Shiloh comes. And we looked at that as a proper name and went over to Matthew chapter 11 and saw that uh, perhaps when Jesus was saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, that he was very more than likely announcing himself as that rest bringer from Genesis 49, because that's what that term Shiloh means. So then we, we went over and spent the rest of our time, most of our time actually, in Numbers chapter 24, uh, looked at the prophecy of Balaam, uh, one of the prophecies of Balaam. Uh, my college professor who taught me called him the two-faced prophet. Uh, you know, what a, what a great name because on, on one side, man, he's like, you know what, I'm only, I'm only going to preach what the, word of, uh, you know, what, what the word of God tells me, what, whatever God tells me to say, that's what I'm going to speak. Uh, and then, you know, he ends up taking a job from Balak, uh, king of the Moabites, to uh, curse Israel, right? So, you know, God speaks prophecies through him, and, and to Balaam's credit, he does a great job uh, speaking what the Lord gives him. But then it sure seems like uh, a little bit later on, he counsels them to, to take the, the pretty Moabite ladies and, and throw them in front of the Israelites uh, to get them to, to trip up and, and sin. And that's exactly what happened. But in the prophecy, the last prophecy in, in Numbers 24, uh, verse 17, what we see there is the star and the scepter, uh, looking that uh, the, the Messiah is going to be going to be king. He's going to he's going to uh, have this concept of a star associated with him. We, we looked at Revelation 22:16, how he's the bright morning star and how that all kind of came about. But then what we saw was the timeline by which the star and scepter was going to appear because he's a see him, but not now. I behold him, but he's far off. Um, and then he, he brings it all together and lays out the history of, of, of events that are going to be coming out. Um, Amalek, uh, the beginning, they were destroyed. Uh, then we have God saying the, the, the Kenites or, or Cain, they were going to be protected until the Assyrian captivity uh, about 700 years later. And then we have the destruction of the, the, the Mesopotamian powers, um, you know, because Assyria was, was conquered by Babylon, which was conquered by Persia, all kind of in that same area. And then what we see is from the coast of Katim, and when we looked at 1 Maccabees 1.1, that's where it says that, uh, uh, you know, again, not, not inspired, but a great historical book, it says that Alexander came from the coast of Katim um, and ended up destroying 
uh, Eber and Asher. So Asher being the ones that were the Eastern Semitic peoples in Mesopotamia, Eber were the, were the ones that were in Syria, Phoenicia, Canaan, uh, the, the Western uh, Semitic peoples. And then what we see at the very end was that Greece itself, uh, he was going to be destroyed, which brings us into the time of Rome, which is when the star and the scepter appears. Uh, so really kind of a, kind of a cool concept uh, that, that God lays out through a very unlikely source. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that we kind of recognize through the scripture uh, is, that, is that God's going to get his message out um, no matter who, no matter where, uh, no matter how. Uh, it's it's going to come out and it's and it's going to build the faith of the people of God. So these are the really kind of great things that we see um, coming out already. Now what we're doing is we're moving over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we're going to be spending a lot of time here. We might not get any further than just Deuteronomy 18 because... There is a lot in here. Even though we're only looking at a, at a few verses, there's a lot in here. So, you know, Moses is getting ready to pass away, and he's, he's laying out the law again. Uh, Deuteronomy, second law, second time it's laid out. Uh, and what we're going to uh, get, get to here is the context where he's really talking about spiritism, uh, false prophets, and he's saying, you know, don't don't go to the spiritists, don't go to the psychics, and you know, it's it's funny that you know people still you know kind of are, are fascinated uh, with that whole thing. You know, they're they're fascinated with with trying to figure out the future. Um, I know, you know, I don't really under, understand that because you know I kind of know that those things are, are pretty inaccurate, and a lot of them are, are charlatans. Uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, kind of size you up and, and uh, figure you out from, from the uh, look of you and from a little bit of conversation and can figure things out. But I also know that, that some of those things are spot on uh, and, you know, the source of them is not from God. So it's probably the only other, one other source for those things. And, you know, we're, we're told not to mess around with that kind of thing. So uh, after God says that, he says, but here, here's what I'm going to do for you. Okay, I'm, I'm telling you not to go to the spiritists. I'm telling you not to go to, to the psychics, the witches, any of those types of things, uh, mediums. But here's what I'm going to give you. Verse 15, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I always I find that kind of funny. Yeah, it's probably a good thing that they asked about that because you remember what they were doing down there at the bottom afterwards, right? Um, not good. The Lord said to me, they have spoken, or so the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or of which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. 
The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So the main thing that we see here, you know, found in verse 15 and found in verse 18, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And then down in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And then specifically verse 19 too, it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So let's kind of figure this out a little bit here. What, what we're seeing here right off the bat is um, when this is taking place. So this actually was uttered to Moses uh, 40 years before this, back at Mount Horeb, you know, because that's what he says, you know, it was really good that they said, you know, don't talk to me. I don't want to see his fire anymore. You know, hey, that's, that's great stuff. They spoke well. Um, that was about 1447. What we're looking at here is about 1407, so about 14 years later. So 1400 BC uh, is, is what we're looking at here. And God making the prophecy now that I'm going to raise up a prophet like you from among their countrymen. So what is he, is he kind of getting at with this? There's a lot of, of uh, comparison and, and contrast that we can make uh, with this section of Scripture. You know, we'll get to the contrast part of the false prophets here in just a moment. But what we need to find out here is, is what are we supposed to be looking for with this prophet when he says, a prophet like you, like Moses. So I'm going to raise up a prophet like Moses. And the reason this is so important to identify is because Verse 19, it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Sounds like this person has a lot of authority. Sounds like this individual is somebody that we need to pay attention to. Okay. Now keep your finger there um, and flip over to Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy 34. And let's get a little bit more of a glimpse of Moses here. Now, Moses was a spectacular prophet. I mean, and, and a lot of times people don't think of Moses as a prophet. You know, they think of him as the lawgiver, as, as the leader that led them out of Israel, as the miracle worker. But very clearly, God revealed him as a prophet. Okay, and, and we'll, we'll get into that here in a little bit. So in Deuteronomy 34, we're going to start in verse number 9. It says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet had risen or has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So very clearly, what he said is that a prophet had not arisen like Moses. And let's think about that for a moment. You know, when, when you look at all of the prophets that are laid out throughout the Old Testament, Moses does stand apart. Very clearly, he states uh, earlier that or God says this. He goes, when I speak to prophets, I'm in visions, I'm clouding my, you know, it's not clear. I speak to Moses. I speak face to face. He's the one that said, show me your glory. He's the one who had his face shining as a result of seeing the glory of God. He is the one who was elevated far above everyone else as God's man. The only, and by far did, did so many miracles. The, the most powerful ones that God kept on referring back to 
You know, he was the one through whom God did the plagues, the, the Red Sea, uh, what happened at Sinai, all the things that happened in the wilderness. You see, that all took place through Moses, right? And so the only two prophets that can even come close to any of those types of things are Elijah and Elisha. Um, and they did incredible things, don't get me wrong. Um, but they, they did not have the type of position that Moses had. I mean, we call it the Mosaic Covenant, right? The Mosaic Law for a reason. It came through uh, the, the uh, hand of Moses and through the mouth of Moses. So this prophet, if, he, if, if God's going to raise up this prophet, He's going to be like that. He's going to be at that level and, and must even transcend that level as well. So <clears throat> what this did, this concept of the prophet that God was going to raise up is found all through the New Testament. Okay, And you can tell by looking at the way that everybody is kind of dividing up the different titles in the Old Testament they had some confusion around this, okay? So, so let's, uh, we'll go in chronological order here. So we'll start in John 1. Let's go to John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1. And what we see here is, I'm talking to John, the Baptist, the Immerser here, and we're going to start looking in verse number 19, John 1, 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So the question is, when they ask him if he's the Christ and he says no, why are they asking him if he's Elijah? And why is he asking why are they ask him if he's the prophet? See, what they were actually looking for, so was John Elijah? Yeah, he was. Jesus said so. Um, but what they had in mind was a reincarnation of, of Elijah, that Elijah was gonna come back. And so his answer is truthful. I'm, I'm not the reincarnation of, of Elijah. And, and, and it wasn't John's place to say, yeah, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy. Okay. Jesus is the one who said that. Okay. So, but the ones I want to focus on are, are Christ and the prophet. I am not the Christ. And he, they asked him if he's a prophet. He says, no. Well, if those two people, as we know, are the same person, why are they distinguishing between the two? It's because they viewed them as two different people. And you're going to see that going through here. And so in verse 22, it says, And when they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And then notice what happens in verse 24. Now they had, sent, now, uh, <clears throat> now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? See, John answered and said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. 
It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So, again, they, they make the distinguishing uh, remarks there. Christ, Elijah, the prophet. Because okay, that's how they understood it. That's how they understood it. Now, let's flip over to John chapter 4. Actually, you know what? Let's go to John 6 first. We'll go to John 4 in a second. because that, that actually changes directions here in just a moment. John chapter 6. And let's go to uh, we'll go to verse 13. Now what happened here? The 5,000 were just fed. Um, and you know they gather, they're gathering up the leftover fragments, <clears throat> you know, the miraculous uh, expanding uh, multiplication of the fish and the bread. And he says in verse 13, he says, "So they gathered them up, verse 13, uh, they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over. By, uh, by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign that he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So now they're viewing him as the prophet. And if you think about this, when they catch up with him a little bit later, you see, and they ask him in verse 28, you know, first off, Jesus calls them on, on their garbage, right? They're like, oh, hey, Rabbi, when'd you get here, right? And they're like, look, <laughs> You guys are not seeking me for any other reason but because you had a good meal. And he's saying, don't, don't work for the food that perishes, right? Work for what gives you eternal life, the food that gives you eternal life. And so verse 28, they then turn on him a little bit when they recognize they're not getting free food. Funny how that works. It says, therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? They just saw it. But they're, they're irritated with him. They're upset with him. So in verse 31, he, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven for the true bread that has come down, has come down out of heaven. Um, he says, for the true bread is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And he says, I am the bread of life. Okay. And you know how the story goes. They Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're like, oh, we can't handle this. This guy's given us his flesh to eat, his blood to drink. This is, this is gross. This is disgusting. Jesus defines it. You know, when, when he, he looks at his disciples a little bit later on, and, you know, he, he says, you don't want to go away also, do you? You know, he says that a little bit later. A little bit before that, he says, the words I've spoken to you, they're spirit and they are life. He's not physically talking about Hey, I'm going to give you my physical flesh to eat and my physical blood to drink. This is spiritual. And this is actually what takes place during the Lord's Supper. There's not some physical transubstantiation that takes place uh, that, that mystically turns uh, the stuff of the bread and, and, the, and the juice into literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual fellowship. Okay, it's a spiritual fellowship. That's what's taking place. But... That's why they say this is the prophet who's come into the world because he's given them the bread, right? He, he's, he's giving them food, kind of like what Moses did. 
See, a prophet like me from among your countrymen. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. They need some food. Jesus gives it to them. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. They need food. Moses intercedes. God gives it to them. So that's, that's the connection that they're, that they're making there. <clears throat> um, John chapter 7. And let's go down to <clears throat> uh, verse 37. One of my favorite passages here in, in the Gospel of John. He says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from this innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Such a huge, I don't have time to go into this, but such a huge important verse, that the indwelling Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So nobody could have had the same type of indwelling Spirit that the Christian has before Jesus was glorified. Not possible. Okay, not possible. The Holy Spirit came upon people all the time in the Old Testament, and you didn't have to be righteous for that. Uh, King Saul is a great example. Um, he was evil. The Spirit of God had left him. God had forsaken him, but the Spirit still came on him, and he prophesied with the rest of the prophets. See, and, and the Spirit came upon Balaam, even though he was a two-faced prophet. See, so you, you didn't have to be righteous to have the Spirit of God come upon you, but you have to be justified for the Spirit of God to, to live within you. No one could be justified until Jesus was glorified. Therefore, the Spirit couldn't be given yet. But that, again, whole different, whole different other topic. But notice what happens when people heard what Jesus said. Verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Had not, uh, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem in the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. See? So <clears throat> notice what's, what's taking place here. Some were saying the prophet, some were saying this is the prophet. Others were saying this is the Christ. Again, they had that distinguishing between the roles there. When we know, looking at it from hindsight, this is all the same individual. Last thing we're going to go to here, real quick, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4. And right after Jesus gives his really amazing uh, little confession here, or not, not confession necessarily, um, but proclamation, that's probably a better word, of what God's looking for and what the true worship or what the true submission to God actually is. He says in verse 21, uh, well, first of all, the, the woman says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say Jerusalem was a place for men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit 
and in truth. Now, I always find that really interesting because people always like to take that and they say, see, you can worship God anywhere. Actually, what that verse tells you, or part of that verse tells you, you can't worship God anywhere. Notice what he says. Verse 21, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. See, people always like to look at that and read that either in Jerusalem or on this mountain. No, it's neither in this. In other words, you can't worship God at that mountain. You can't worship God in Jerusalem. You can't worship God anywhere. Why? Because he says the true worship of God takes place in spirit and in truth. And that, that word for worship is a really bad translation of the Greek and the Hebrew as well. Um, it actually means to bow down, which is a symbol of submission. So that's actually the concept that he's trying to get across is a submission. So God's, say, God's not looking for an external submission. He's looking for an internal submission. Now, that being said, look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Why is that so important? Well, the Samaritans only believed in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the five books of Moses is what they believed in. And so the concept that they're finding of the Messiah only comes from Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So where's this concept? I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will declare all things to us. He will teach us everything. He will tell us everything we need to know. Isn't that what Moses did? Wasn't he the lawgiver? So this passage right here in, in, in John 4 with the Samaritan woman, she's actually extrapolating the concept of the Messiah being like Moses, being the lawgiver, being the teacher, being the one who explains. The only place we're going to find that's in Deuteronomy 18. Okay, So what a great concept uh, that, that we see here based upon some of the verses um, in the New Testament, specifically the Gospel of John. So now what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at how does... Uh, or how, how did the apostles take a look at this? So, so let's flip over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And we're going to start back in verse 11. So what we're going to see here is right after uh, Peter heals... Uh, the man who had been lame from his mother's womb there in the, the, the gate, beautiful, uh, the temple. Uh, we see that he preaches a message. And so we're there in verse 11. And so I find it interesting. You know, the first line says, and while he was clinging to Peter and John, uh, this guy, you know, lame, paralyzed from, from his mother's womb. He, he can walk, right? I mean, he just was trying to get some money and, and he gets something so much better and he's clinging to Peter and John. He doesn't want to let him go because of what they've done for him. I just, I just, I, I love that picture. It's pretty, pretty good. So verse 11, it says, and while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, 
Why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you, diso you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. That's the other thing. Just want to hit this. You got, all these faith, you got all these faith healers out there today, right? And when they heal somebody, you know, they stumble around and, you know, and, and get their balance and, you know, all of this. You can tell it's, it's not there. I mean, look, this guy, lame from birth, he's in perfect health now. Jumped up. I mean, this is, this is not something that happens gradually as a result of hype. It's instantaneous as a result of miraculous power. That's the difference between the miracles done today and the miracles done when they were real uh, through the hands of people back in the days of the first century. Um, I'm always amazed why, you know, if these people have these kinds of gifts, why they don't go into um, nursing homes or, or hospitals or children's hospitals or, uh, you know, uh, funeral homes, morgues, start raising the dead. You know, it's always, you know, in some far off country in the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah. A friend of mine had a cousin whose uncle's brother, uh, saw somebody get raised from the dead. Yeah. That's, that's great. That, that's awesome. Um, this was all done out in the open and in, in, in public in front of everybody. So, uh, huge difference anyway. And now brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as the rulers also. Uh, rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send you Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said... The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, Abraham, with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Again, a lot of good stuff in there. But notice what, what Peter does. He quotes Deuteronomy 18 and interprets it for us. So, from the, from the concept of, of the Christian, what we interpret this as in, in Deuteronomy 18 is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. <clears throat> and it makes sense. I mean, we're, we're going to go through some of the comparisons between, between Moses and, and Christ in just a moment here, but it makes a lot of sense. Very, very similar in what they did. 
in, in how they, they, they lived. And a lot of the factors of their lives were kind of the same too. And, and we'll get to that here in a moment. Um, but <clears throat> the next thing we want to see there real quick is, is cause some people say this is a line of prophets. Well, back in, in Deuteronomy 34 and also where he quotes it here in, in Acts 3, I'm sorry, uh, Deuteronomy 18, it's singular. And it's in the front of the sentence uh, in word order for emphasis. A prophet, God will raise up. See? So it's, it's, it's emphatic that it's actually one. Okay? Um, what's the nationality? He's going to be raised from their countrymen, from their brothers. So he is going to be an Israelite. All right, so he's not going to be a Gentile. He's not going to come from somewhere else. He is going to be a single man coming from the nation of Israel. And he's going to be like Moses. Well, let's take a look at this. Um, so just think about the way they both came into the world. Moses' life was in danger. Jesus' life was in danger. As infants. Right? Kind of interesting. Um, so... Moses spent uh, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent uh, 40 days in the wilderness fasting. Um, <clears throat> you know, he, Moses was with Jesus at the uh, transfiguration, right? Um, so we've got uh, 70 elders um, that Moses had. We've got the 70 disciples um, that Jesus had. And also in the transfiguration, there was the cloud, uh, very, very similar um, that we have there. Uh, we have Moses and Jesus both had enjoyed very intimate fellowship with God. Moses beheld God face to face and was glorified. Jesus also was glorified during the transfiguration, right? Um, Moses was a miracle worker and there hadn't been anyone that had been a miracle worker like him on that type of scale, that huge type of scale until Jesus came and Jesus even did greater things than, than Moses did, um, both were mediators of a covenant. Moses of the old covenant, Jesus of, of the new covenant. Um, they were both lawgivers. They were both deliverers. Okay? Moses delivering people from physical bondage, uh, even though they were still spiritually enslaved in the wilderness. Um, kind of a mess of a group of people. However, Jesus' deliverance uh, comes spiritually, and it's a total and complete deliverance. I mean, there, there's tons of things more, but but those are just some of the high level aspects of, of what we can look at, what we can look at between the two that show how they are very very similar. Now, the one I do kind of want to hit at is is in Hebrews chapter three. We will look at that one though. Hebrews chapter three. So in Hebrews chapter three, what the writer of Hebrews here is doing. Um, <clears throat> is taking a look at um, the house versus the builder of the house, right? Kind of, a, kind of an important distinction there um, that, that he's, he's taking a look at. You know, Moses is the one that is the um, uh, builder of the house, um, you know, and, and I'm sorry, let's, let's go there. I'm thinking of two different things at one time here, and which is not a good thing in, inside your head. Let's look at verse one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, uh, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy much more than Moses, just as so much of the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
See, so, and oh, let's keep going here. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which were given to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So, you know, the builder has more honor than the house. And so in this particular analogy, Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses is the house. Moses was faithful in everything, right? Moses was faithful in everything, but, but God is the builder, and, and we, we know by looking at this, Jesus was the builder. And, and the house is just a, a better house. So he, he actually transcends Moses. So notice what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He is actually making the point here that Jesus is greater than Moses, which is what the Hebrew Christians who were thinking about going back into Judaism needed to hear. They needed to hear how this was so much better than so many of the other things that they were doing. Um, under Judaism. Okay. Um, now let's think about this uh, as well. Let's go back to, to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 again. And let's look at some of the consequences here. Deuteronomy 18, 19. It shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. See, so what's really the focus here is the authority of this prophet. The way it's quoted in Acts, the one who doesn't listen shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. See, what's God trying to get across here? You have to go through this prophet. You have to listen to this prophet. Jesus himself said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's a bold statement. It's a very arrogant statement if it's not true. No one comes to the Father but by me. This prophet is the one that has to be listened to. He has to be reckoned with. He, has, he is the doorway by which we reach the Father. There's no end run around him. You can't still hold fast to Moses. right? Hebrews 3 lets us know that. You can't still hold fast to Moses. You have to go through Jesus Christ. There's no other way around him. And then he goes on to talk about the fact of how do we tell a real prophet from a, from a, from a false prophet? The true prophet of God has to be 100% accurate. There's all of these people out there today that, that claim that they prophesy. And you know what's amazing? Is so many of them contradict each other. How many of their prophecies don't come to pass? And then they say, oh, I got another revelation. Basically, God changed his mind. No, that's a false prophet. You're not to be afraid of them. You're not to listen to them. Like the spiritists, you're supposed to drive them out. That kind of individual has no credence. You shouldn't listen to them. Anyone that says that they're getting their revelation directly from God, you really need to question that. Where's the proof? Oh, something they said one time came true. Great. Everything they say has to come true. 100% accuracy. Every time. They can't get another revelation later that says God changed their mind. That's a covering of a lie. The scripture is what we use. It's what we have. This is what 
God has given us for us to determine truth from error. We don't need prophets today. The scripture tells us that the word of God is what fully equips us for every good work. Every good work. What work is not included in every? Why do we need them? See, a lot of times people rely on that kind of stuff because they, they don't necessarily know where to go or what to do. That's when we pray to God for wisdom. And James says he will abundantly supply it to us. See, false prophets are all over the place today. They purposely twist the word of God to their own concerns. And what we, what we do through these types of classes here, through these types of lessons in Messianic prophecy, is we help people understand one simple truth. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. He wrote it. We've got these prophecies written thousands, hundreds of years ahead of time. Fulfillment's documented. All so that we can trust it. So that when it tells us something that we can't necessarily document, like how we're supposed to live our lives going forward and what's waiting for us, we can absolutely trust it because it's already been proven to us that the things in the past are absolutely true. And he nailed them. See, he wants us to live by faith, not by sight. But he doesn't want us to live by blind faith. He wants us to know that the book that's telling us to do things that we can't prove moving forward has been proven looking back so we can trust it. And that's what's essential. Well, I appreciate you taking your time to, uh, to, to spend some time with me uh, going through Deuteronomy 18. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll just continue on with the process and uh, look forward to seeing you then too.